Costs to originate keep rising, even with more technology in the industry. The problem is the core platform. A new LOS can re-architect the process around data, not humans moving paper files. Vesta has built this LOS, and you can learn more at Vesta.com. Welcome, everyone. Fixing the appraisal process has been top of mind for the FHFA and the GSEs this year, and Fannie and Freddie have now expanded the use of automated valuation models, desktop appraisals, and hybrid appraisals. That's the topic of today's Housing Wire Daily with my guest, senior mortgage reporter Georgia Cromry. Georgia, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, Sarah. Always great to have you on. And wow, we have a lot of news going on. And the federal beat is hot as ever. (laughs) That's true. Yep. So let's start out with um, something that just happened, which was the FHFA just uh, released their annual report to Congress. And you feel like there are some newsworthy things in there that you're going to be writing up. Yeah. So this is their annual report to Congress, and they just filed it this morning. So if people are listening to it on Thursday, then then this happened Wednesday morning. There were there were a couple of newsy items in here. Um, there was kind of uh, there was speculation last year that FHFA was going to do a holistic pricing review, and that was after um, Director Sandra Thompson made some remarks that kind of hinted at doing that. And then um, they approved targeted pricing increases for high balance and investor loans in early 2022. And that led to kind of speculation that, well, okay, if they do that on the, on the higher end, you know, maybe they're going to do some pricing changes for mission borrowers. And in this report, they, um, they said that they have already instructed the enterprises to start updating their pricing frameworks to increase support for those mission borrowers. So that process seems to be already underway formally, and you know perhaps we'll hear more about that. So that that is exciting, and and then also you know this report is to Congress, so it's important to understand like who their audience is. And FHFA asked for a few things that um, that could only come from Congress. FHFA can't do everything administratively. Um, for some things would need um, statutory changes. Um, and one of the things they point out is that FHFA doesn't have the authority to examine services provided to uh, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. So, you know, they, um, through their uh, relationship with Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, can tell Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac to have to have certain things in their agreements with their service providers. And they can, you know, even even ensure that Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac request documents from their service providers if if something is, is you know goes goes wrong in, in the agreement or 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 there needs to be more oversight. But FHFA doesn't have like direct oversight of the entities that provide services to Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, and um, and they think that um, that Congress should should change that. So that would mean that they would expand their uh, regulatory oversight to entities beyond um, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, which I don't know about the chances of that happening happening in Congress right now. I don't know if anyone is, fo- is particularly focused on that issue, but FHFA is asking for it um, is interesting. That is very interesting. I mean, this whole dance between the FHFA and the GSCs and everybody else, like, it's been unclear for a while. I mean, there there things keep coming up that's like, whose territory is this? And where's the overlap? And and should it be, you know, would it be more efficient and would it be better for consumers and the industry and, you know, and others to to have it more consolidated? It's it's an open question. 
Yeah, right. And and that's another um, and that that's another recommendation that FHFA made to Congress in their report. They said, you know, look, the conservatorship has been going on for far longer than anyone ever intended. And uh, you know, if there were changes to the charter or the ability to charter new enterprises or to you know run the uh the enterprises uh with a different business model like a utility for example anything like that 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 is beyond FHFA's uh, current authority to to determine and Congress needs to needs, needs to step in and do something about that that would be really complicated but um uh, uh but but de- definitely that's in um the the realm of Congress so when you say entities beyond are these the third party service providers that like like who are the entities well, that's right. I'm talking yeah, about yeah okay. that's that's right. Yeah. Super interesting. And and you, you have to wonder if those third party service providers want to be <laughs> what the appetite is among, the, among them to have the FHFA uh, get into their business. Right. Pretty interesting. You know, the other big FHFA news this week um, was the GSEs. Um, you know, we finally got the equitable housing plans or was that last week? I might be. That was. Yeah, that was the end, the end of last week. OK. Yeah. And we were waiting on those for quite some time, correct? Uh, yeah, a long time. <laughs> Like they were, they were six, they were six months later than FHFA had initially said they would be. Um, so this wasn't like, you know, there was a deadline that observers put on this or, you know, some sort of outside speculation about when they would come out. No, this was, you know, in, in the request for input um, from FHFA last year, they said that they would have the plans out by uh, January, January 1st. That was six months ago. <laughs> And this was another another thing that I was confused about when we uh, you wrote a story that we published yesterday, an excellent story that was GSCs further expand AVMs, desktop, and hybrid appraisals, which was just part of those equitable housing plans, which you've written up in several stories. And and the confusing part to me is like if it's an FHFA led effort, but it's Fannie and Freddie Mac have to be the ones to come up with the plan. So that whole like did Fannie and Freddie. You know, do they give those to FHFA for approval? Has this already been baked in by FHFA before they announce it? Like, what is that process? Yeah, so there's some some stuff we know about the process, and then there's some stuff we don't know about the process. These are plans that are definitely written by the enterprises. They're not written by FHFA. And, you know, they're different in their approach. And, and you look at the, the plans are distinct and, you know, they have their own their own voices. But it's it's kind of similar to the duty to serve plans, uh, which came out earlier this year, where the enterprises come up with their plans and then they have to meet, you know, for FHFA, it's, it's called a, a standard of non-objection. They don't they don't directly say, you know, we we approve or we, you know, we condone this plan. They say we we don't object to it, and then the plan, you know, is formally ratified. So it happened earlier in that process with duty to serve that uh, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac both submitted their plans to FHFA to meet that standard, and FHFA said no, it doesn't meet it. Um, you know, you have to you have to come up with new plans, um, and so we kind of got a window into how that back and forth worked with duty to serve with the equitable housing finance plans that came out last week you know they were they were really late and um when asked why the plans took so long FHFA said you know they have they have some additional pieces that they weren't planning that or that they hadn't planned on, on having originally so so they have a um a pilot uh, transparency program they're going to list all all the pilots that the GSEs 
um, have on a on a public website that's part of accountability for the um, for the plans. And they said that the, that it took them a really long time to go through the plans and make sure that there wasn't anything in there that was disclosing um, proprietary information. Now. I don't know if that sounds like a six-month delay sort of situation to me, <laughs> but you know, I'll let other people be the be the judge of that. I, uh, you know, maybe there was some more back and forth um, that we didn't get to see during that six months. But uh, yeah, that's the official version of of why it took. Uh, six months later than originally planned. Well, I am very interested in the um, in the part of that that you wrote up uh, most recently about the appraisal modernization and what that looks like. We, you know, you and I have been talking about this for a year more, a year and a half maybe, about uh, what this looks like under the Biden administration and how aggressive they're being in really trying to tackle an issue that has gone completely untackled up until now. I I shouldn't say that. From a federal standpoint, it seems like it was not on the radar in the way that it is now. And so it was interesting to see the appraisal piece pop up pretty prominently as part of the equitable housing plans. And in the way that it did is, I think, going to um, definitely get the attention of those in appraisal in in other ways, because they've really leaned on the um, automated valuation models, desktop appraisals, and hybrid appraisals, which have been controversial among people in appraising. I don't know if it's controversial outside of that, but you know, we're all trying to get to like, what is the non-biased approach? How do we get to true value on homes? And you know, it's it's been a a really difficult problem to solve. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. This this issue, I think more than any other I report on, this issue really seem, seems to um, provoke strong uh, emotional reactions. You know, I think um, on a lot of sides of this, there's um, there's skepticism, there's concern from appraisers that that this is kind of the march toward taking the appraiser out of appraisals. Um, you know, there's there's skepticism from appraisal management companies that this is going to further complicate a process that, you know, uh, is, is already qu- quite complicated. And, you know, I, I think a lot of that skepticism uh, has merit, you know, but I, I was talking to, to someone a few days ago who um, specializes in advising um, appraisal management companies and uh, advising um, uh, appraisers on um, regulatory matters and um, fair housing. And, um, and they explained to me how, um, how they think that, that doing, doing something like a hybrid appraisal or a desktop appraisal could actually remove bias. And I thought it was, it was really interesting. I hadn't heard, heard an explanation that was this succinct before. And, and it's like, if you have an appraiser um, walking through the home, you know, they're taking pictures, they're doing an inspection. They they might be somehow unconsciously impacted and have have um, biases in the in their work as a result of seeing something like a portrait of a black family on the wall. And we've and we've heard these anecdotes of of people whitewashing their homes before um, an an appraiser comes through. Um, and if you have a third party data collector doing that, you know, they might also have those same unconscious biases or, or even overt biases. And they, they might, you know, have all, all sorts of, of, of opinions. But according to this person who, um, who draws up contracts between the third party data providers and uh, appraisal firms or, or lenders, 
you know, they they are very limited in what kinds of pictures and what kind of data they can deliver to um, to the appraiser. They're not the third party data collectors are not doing any of the analysis. So, sort of separating the data collection from the analysis is really um, in this in this person's uh, view is really the key to eliminating a potential source. Not the only source, but a potential source of appraisal bias. That's a really interesting point because we have seen, you know, as you've reported on, like some of the automated valuation models, if they're if they're based on some of the historical valuations of neighborhoods, aren't coming up anymore, um, or or potentially couldn't, you know, could come up with the same sort of bias just because they're relying on that. So interesting to see a whole different way of getting around it, which is like let's let's address this part of it. Right, right. Yeah, and with and and with automated valuation models, yeah, there's been a lot of really interesting research about how they perform in majority black neighborhoods and um you know, there, I think I think there is a lot of um a, a lot of healthy skepticism about whether automated valuation models can sort of amplify the historical disparities that exist in the market. And you know, you can't you, you really can't um discount that you know, if they're if they're being fed data that includes uh comparisons um sales comparisons that, you know, have have those disparities baked in and they're going they're they're going to be impacted by that. But, you know, at the same time, so so would uh traditional appraisals. They're they're if they're relying on the same sales comparison data and, you know, an a, an AVM uh, might draw on two hundred sales comparisons rather than um, you know, a dozen. But, you know, how how are they going to amplify those patterns that already exist? I think it's a really um important question. And researchers, what I hear over and over from researchers and academics and people who are studying this is that really, um, you know, there are a lot of questions as the as the GSEs expand the use of um, AVMs, as um, they expand the use of um, hybrid appraisals, desktop appraisals. There are a lot of questions, and um, and and researchers are pretty limited in how they can assess how expansion is progressing and and how prudent it is, and and whether it has any um, disproportionalities that are um, unexpected or new disproportionalities that that um you know are arising because of those those kinds of appraisals because they don't have access to the data that the GSEs do to conduct all of this research. So like Freddie Mac, for example, in their um in, in their equity plan, they have um they ha- they have more than twenty research projects uh scheduled. I'm I'm sure that's that's a that's a lower bound, not an upper bound. They have more than 20 research projects scheduled um, for the, you know, to, to address questions, not just about appraisals, but about other things as well. But, you know, none of that research can be checked by a neutral, um, objective outside party, you know, um, because they don't have access to the proprietary data that, um, that the GSUs have. Well, you know, one of the things, so hybrid appraisals is when they have a third party that's not an actual appraiser. Um, do, you know, collect some of that data, correct? That's the hybrid appraisal? That's right. Yeah. And yeah. you, you had, you've had some conversations. I mean, I know that appraisers really push back against this if there's not going to be someone who's sort of overseeing that person, because to them, they're like, you know, how do you know that this person who isn't part of a larger 
profession has less bias than your typical appraiser. I mean, it, in some ways, it feels like you're introducing more uncertainty by having random people. I mean, they could be real estate agents or they could be someone else. I think you had a really interesting conversation yesterday, uh, someone talking about who might be some of those uh, third parties. Right. So, yeah, so that's, so that is a really good question. Um, I mean, I think in some cases, the third party, you know, is an appraiser trainee or someone who's, who's apprenticing and, you know, it's sort of a way for them to get hours and get, um, get experience doing inspections and, and all under the guidance of an appraiser. But that's sort of, I don't, I don't know how much that is the case. What I'm hearing a lot of now is that it's sort of, you know, becoming like a more of a, a lowest common denominator um, labor sort of um, arrangement where, you know, companies, apps are marketing to people and paying them extremely, extremely low rates. I mean, I've, I've heard some extremely, extremely low rates, like like $8 an, an inspection, $8 for an inspection, not $8 an hour or $8 per photo. No, but for the entire inspection <laughs> and people and the idea uh, through apps is that people, you know, it, you, you know, it's like you're riding your skateboard down the street and you snap a couple of pictures of a of a house, you know, it's kind of been being being marketed that way to like this, the same labor force that would that would be doing, you know, Uber and and um and, uh, you know, del- delivery, that sort of thing. So, so that's, you know, that you wonder what kind of quality control is there going to be on, on a very important part of real estate transactions, you know? I cannot imagine. I mean, anyone listening to this probably feels the same, uh, astonishment that you felt when you heard that. And I feel that, that I'm like, if we think that the answer to getting more of a of an you know better values and also you know take stripping bias out of the product is to pay someone eight dollars to go snap pictures of a house and that that's some gig worker who's you know doing Uber and I've had very smart great nothing against Uber drivers but it's the whole method like this is not somebody who you know, do they even know what to take a picture of? Can you trust that they were at that right place at the right time, taking a picture of the right house? Do you, I mean, there, to me, you're introducing so much uncertainty into the equation that it feels like a step backwards. Yeah, I think that's fair. And I think that, that there are a lot of people who, um, who feel that way. Um, you know, on the other hand, this idea that the data collection and the analysis portion is separated, you know, maybe, maybe there are some, uh, kinks to work out <laughs> as, as someone told me, um, in this, in this process, but, but, you know, maybe, maybe it is the right direction, <laughs> but it, it does sound like the, there, there are some, some kinks to work out. And I don't know how something, how, how, you know, you know, something like that sounds like it would, would potentially work in a, place that's very populous, but how do you get, you know, how do you, how do you get an, an Uber driver in a rural area or, um, or, you know, some more, um, specialized, um, kinds of appraisals where, um, you know, the, the inspection, there are just, just some more nuances to it. I don't know, but, but it is certainly, um, you know, $8 an inspection is certainly a lot less than what, um, what appraisers are, are paid. I can. Yeah. I'm, I'm just simply astounded. So I will continue to be astonished 
at this idea and we'll be looking for what what does it look like on the other end and and i'm not saying it's not it's not it doesn't have some legs in some form but um yeah i i I think it's going to be interesting to see love that you are keeping an eye on it i believe you were the one in the room when fannie mae announced at mba annual that they were going to make desktop appraisals permanent and there was an audible gasp in the room Oh yeah, people were very people were very excited by that. Yeah. yeah. So meanwhile, I know that some appraisers really, you know, they're divided on will they even do these? I mean, you know, just because you're able to do them doesn't mean they want to do them or they think they're the right thing to do or whatever. So, and it, you know, also depends on the loan type and it depends on a lot of things, but this is something that we're going to be keeping our eye on because, you know, the devil's in the details of how you do this and and then probably, you know, the problem with Big, big corporations, big companies, um, even, you know, government sponsored enterprises is how do they, how do they iterate quickly? So, say, you know, you can see like some other, you know, nimble company, you know, think of all the iterations Uber's gone through or whatever, but like, how do you do this? And then, you know, you realize in, in a year, first of all, how do you realize it's terrible or needs changing? And then turning that boat around. I mean, we've been to your point, it took them six months to do, you know, to get some of these things in place. So it's just a, it, the size of this and the importance of understanding the underlying asset makes it, the stakes really high. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I want to give some, I want to give the GSE some credit. I think, I think when they are able to iterate things and make business decisions and work things out is one thing. I think sometimes them getting on the same page with their regulator is not always as easy. So I, I don't, I really, I, I'm really curious what, what happened in that, um, in that six month interlude, but. Um. <laughs> well, and I, you know, I, I think that they have shown, especially under conservatorship, they've really um, iterated some things and done a lot of things given their constraints that, you know, are pretty incredible for such large companies. Um, so, so no, again, I'm, I'm really not trying to say, anything about the people who work there, but more about the fact that how do you do this when they're hamstrung by, you know, by the regular and not just one regulator, right? Just by all of the different things that they have to consider. Yeah. 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 Um, I, I was, you know, when I was just, I was just glancing through the, the, um, the report to Congress, they have uh, both of, it looks like both of the GSEs have met their affordable housing goals for last year so far based based on based on preliminary numbers um and they, they didn't uh, um they didn't meet all of them the year prior so well we're going to have to have a whole separate podcast on manufactured housing because i follow a lot of manufactured housing uh developers and like owners of manufacturing home parks and the rent increases on the land and the pressure on, um, you know, property tax pressure on the owners so that they're raising rate, uh, rents and things. I think that's going to be the next part of this. It's like, this is, this is a really unsettling thing. If, if you're looking to really serve the low income, you know, low income renter, um, low income consumer who's looking for a place to live, you know, manufacturing housing is one of those things that the GSEs have really said, this is one of those things to look at. But the way the market is right now, I mean, they are being, 
a lot of people who have been in place for a long time might even own the manufactured home that they live in, but the their, the rent on the land that they're on top of is going up so fast that they're going to be displaced. So there's just, you know, it, it feels like, you know, you gotta, you gotta think for the GSEs, they, it's like whack-a-mole. You, you get one thing, maybe, <laughs> maybe done and something else pops up because, you know, we're operating in a market environment. So they're trying to, they have a duty to serve in a market environment. It's really difficult. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, Yeah. And, and yeah, I wonder how the volatility plays out um, for the G, how they are impacted with market by market uh, volatility. Really curious about that. Well, we will talk about that in a further one. I so appreciate uh, having you on Georgia. Is there anything you want to preview that um, I know we talked about the, at the, at the beginning, what you're working on, any other things that you're looking to report on that we should be looking out for? Yeah, I am I am hearing some rumblings about potential conclusion to the credit scoring model saga at FHFA. Nothing official yet, but um I am keeping my eyes peeled for um for developments on that. And you know, we are so interested in that. That could have, you know, that could be like a um some reverberations in the industry if they if they change the credit scoring models if they change how that works if they change who they look to for that this is this is seismic stuff so i want to encourage our audience to not only check us out but reach out to georgia at georgia at hw media if you have comments or want to be a source on any of these topics that we've talked about because you know there these are really um these are really fascinating topics. We're already always looking for new great sources. So I'll just give that plug. And Georgia, thank you so much for being on. Thanks for having me. How have the 2022 housing market forecast changed? Or how is the industry navigating the shift to a purchase-driven market? HousingWire's premium content program, HW+, answers questions like these and offers a variety of member-exclusive benefits that are tailored to what you need to stay competitive and agile in today's fast-paced market. Go to housingwire.com forward slash membership to join today. With your HW Plus membership, you get access to longer-form digital content, the HousingWire magazine, member-exclusive rates to in-person events like HousingWire Annual, and more. Thanks for listening to Housing Wire Daily. If you haven't already, we'd love for you to take a minute to rate the show and leave a comment. And make sure to tune in tomorrow for more news and insight.